Hi, everyone, and welcome to this uh, first episode of Fun Tax Talks. This is a special podcast series produced by Baker McKenzie, where we will be discussing some of the most relevant tax topics in, in private equity. My name is Rodrigo Gea. I am a tax partner based in Madrid. And today I will be joined by Vadim Romanov, a senior transactional tax associate based in London, and by our guest uh, speaker, Willem Wunderink, founder of Wunderink De Vries, a leading firm in the film, uh, sorry, in the field of uh, tax valuations of equity incentives, uh, with a very strong track record in private equity and experience in multiple jurisdictions. Hi, Willem. Good morning. Thanks for being here. So let's kick off. For this first episode, we have chosen the topic of the taxation of carried interest and management equity incentives, because in our experience, uh, these two items, carried interest and management equity incentives, are in, uh, in, in most deals, one of the main drivers of structuring and, and deal dynamics. Also, in the current geopolitical environment, with unprecedented levels of government spending as a result of the pandemic and the war in Ukraine, there is a strong focus of governments on raising revenues, and this triggers uh, the question of how will the uh, private uh, equity sector uh, be impacted by this environment. So, Vadim, in this context, uh, what is, in your view, the expected impact of the tax agenda announced by the UK Prime Minister on the taxation of carried interest? Uh, thank you, Rodrigo. That's that's indeed a very good question. Uh, hi, everyone. So, most most of the listeners would have heard about the UK mini budget, which um, was delivered by the UK Chancellor on the twenty third of September, twenty twenty two. And in that mini budget, the Chancellor, who is obviously a long-standing long-term supporter of, of the value of private capital, he really outlined a series of tax cuts and, and essentially plans, which the government hopes will effectively stimulate the economic growth uh, in the UK. And the key tax message was quite simple, actually, to simplify the UK tax system. So obviously, decisions were made to uh, effectively reverse the national uh, contribution, national insurance contributions uh, rise, uh, the 1.25% rise that was announced previously. Um, it was also decided to stop the increase in the corporation tax uh, from 19% uh, to 25%, so that's gone. The IR35, which uh, most listeners will probably know that this is an anti-avoidance measure, which was designed to really ensure that the workers do not wrap up their employment income into personal service companies and therefore pay less tax. That will be repealed from the 6th of April next year as well, 2023. Um, and of course, we have the Office of Tax Simplification, which will be abolished in the UK. And some of the listeners will probably know that the Office of Tax Simplification was or has been publishing its reports uh, on, on the UK capital gains tax, for example, since uh, 2020. And they also recommended, amongst various other things, that the government should consider a much closer alignment of the capital gains tax rates and the income tax rates, which is obviously highly, highly relevant to carried interest holders. 
And then as a result, there's been a speculations, particularly in the media, that the government was actually targeting investment fund executives and their carried interest. And obviously now HMRC has been given the mandate to simplify the UK tax code instead of the Office of Tax Simplification. And really what this means is that the review of the capital gains tax regime and similar initiatives are likely to be at the very least delayed. Um, and separately, some of you may have, may have heard that we also had the income tax rate cut from uh, uh, 45% uh, to 45%, uh, 40%, uh, uh, which was indicative of strong support of the financial services industry, although obviously it was reversed probably about 10 days later because of the pressures from the IMF, the falling pound, etc., etc. So there are quite significant philosophical differences with what we've had before, even from the Conservative Party before Liz Truss, and also what's on offer from the opposition parties, for instance, on the tax cuts and the wealth distribution. And although there is nothing specific on carried interest taxation in the new government's agenda, I think there is a clear focus on growth and really the overall tone about the role of the private sector and the private capital is quite, shall we say, optimistic. Um, now, I'm afraid I don't really have a crystal ball, uh, but in my view, this really means two things. Well, first of all, the government is still focused on making the UK more tax attractive and bringing new investment and skill force into the UK. And well, obviously, this general trend has been particularly prominent since probably about Brexit. And uh, obviously, the aim of the mini budget was to reiterate this message. Uh, to the extent possible, although things didn't go according to plans in some of the measures, such as the income tax um, uh, rates uh, reversal, went slightly too far. Um, and but for example, we've had a, as part of the investments uh, investment fund regime review in the UK, the government introduced a new asset holding company regime, which has a number of tax advantages, uh, particularly for fund investors and for fund managers, and uh, you know. Uh, it will be, for example, much easier for the UK investment managers to now extract carried interest in the form of capital, pay tax at lower rates. And then secondly, and more specifically to your question, Rodrigo, it is unlikely that there will be significant changes to the carried interest taxation introduced in the near future. And this is partially because in the course of your leadership campaign, Liz Truss made it quite clear that there will be no new, tax, uh, no new taxes. And also, this would mean that the government would have to, would have to make another U-turn, uh, and this time not only on income tax rates, but also on their wider approach to attracting investment and businesses into the UK. And this could probably be even a more significant blow to the government and the wider economy going forwards. So there's, of course, a, a risk that the opposition party came, comes into power and introduces a new agenda on tax and in particular on the aligning the CGT rates with income tax rates, uh, which some listeners may remember was actually in the Labour Party's manifesto a few years ago. And of course, there's, we also need to wait and see what the Chancellor unveils in his next fiscal plan, which is currently scheduled for the 31st of October. And some publications have already referred to this as a Halloween budget. But uh, this is not currently on the cards. Even if the government, current or future, does decide to change the carried interest tax rules, there will likely be a further consultation, 
seeking industry views before the draft legislation is actually published. And then the draft legislation would then likely need to go through the normal parliamentary approval process. And therefore, it's likely to take some time for the government to actually formulate any proposed changes and for the legislation to be implemented. So in a nutshell, it, the changes, if there were to be any, should not be imminent. And Rodrigo, what, what about the approach of the Spanish government? Is it similar? Well, believe it or not, um, the Spanish government has announced the first ever rules um, governing the taxation of carried interest in Spain. So these uh, have typically been uncharted waters in terms of legislation, but we will now have rules. And according to these draft rules, which are expected to be enacted as from 2023, carried interest will be fully characterized as employment income, but with a 50% uh, allowance. So, so this will imply, for instance, in Madrid, because the, the rates depend on, on the regions, that carried interest will be taxed at a, an effective tax rate of 22.75% uh, versus a standard rate of 45.5%. So this is a very substantial uh, saving. And this will require, among other things, a five-year holding period and an eligible regulated private equity fund. So these are good news for regulated vehicles, but bad news for non-regulated vehicles. This is an important uh, thing to bear in mind. And it is, it is also interesting to note that this tax incentive will be approved simultaneously with a tax package implying high, higher taxes for the wealthy and the financial sector. So this is these are interesting uh, developments. Now, moving on to management incentives, uh, Willem, what, what are, in your experience, the main tax risks that we should be aware of uh, when dealing with the typical management incentives offered by P funds to the management of their uh, target companies? Yes, thank you, Rigo. That's actually an interesting point that, that sort of covers a very wide area these days. Um, when we look at it from a global perspective, um, not just to say European, uh, but even on a global level, we can see that private equity has matured over the past decades to um, a point where tax authorities are very much aware of what this animal is all about. Um, and whereas incentives might be all about a bonus, an option plan, or a stock appreciation right, private equity has always been very keen to work with incentive plans that are very much equity plans. So the managers that work with the company are expected to be um, co-investing in equity. And the big risk with, um, uh, with equity plans these days is in the valuation of the equity. Um, the tax requalification risks, risks that a lot of um, uh, the players in the private equity industry have become aware of uh, all hinge on valuation. And um, uh, it's, it's basically about having paid the right price from a market pricing perspective, not just to avoid requalification risks upon an exit, so the capital gain taxation risks, but also uh, because the true tax risks occur already at the inception. Um, that's one of the things that we can see coming up in the past few years in, in a lot of countries, particularly continental Europe, where a manager buys equity for, say, one euro, um, and the equity is in fact worth five euro from a market pricing perspective, the delta of four is immediately taxed. And if that four 
euro is then an employment income rather than something on equity because it's a deemed benefit, then it's taxed at, pro at the pro progressive rates. And the problem with progressive rates is obviously they're typically high, around 50% in a lot of countries. Um, and that's where the risk is also a commercial aspect because managers co-invest with significant amounts. If you pay 100,000 of euros from your own wallet, and then on top of that, there is a tax charge that is twice or three times as high because of the fact that the delta can be high, 50% of the delta is still a high amount. You might end up paying 300,000 euro for equity where you thought you were committed to pay only 100,000 euro. So this is a risk that is immediately and deeply tied into uh, um, basically the whole thinking of private equity deals where management need to invest they need to invest with a, with a substantial amount that creates skin in the game. So it's not um, a, a small amount by nature. And then if on top of that, there is a, a doubling, a quadrupling, or even more uh, increase of their investment, it becomes an issue. And not just at the exit, but as I said, at the inception. So the real risk these days, um, basically by virtue of tax authorities having having developed much more understanding of the economics of these plans is in this valuation. And the reason why there is a valuation risk is that the equity that managers are buying is a package that is by their nature not in the market. It is a private equity company that buys the business. Uh, they structure the business, then they repackage part of their own equity and sell it on uh, to the managers. That's also how the tax authorities have to look at it because these packages are not out for sale in an open market. So what the risk is, is that um, the high yield that the managers can get on these packages, usually by virtue of the leverage within these equity structures, um, they can make 20, 40 times their money sometimes, whereas the fund makes a two or three times return. This much higher yield is easily taken as, an, uh, as a disproportionate yield component and that disproportionate yield component is then translated back into uh, excessive valuation or higher value. And if you don't pay for that higher value, the delta is there immediately taxed. So the risk is in uh, uh, in this element and um, it doesn't and have how, to and be how, risk. And how do you manage these risks, uh, Vadim? Yeah, that's a good point, uh, Vadim, because now, um, now that we can see it's there and that we can see that structure as such is perhaps not really helping. Um, I mean, we all used to have a structure around it and then try and create some sort of a safe harbor. Um, that doesn't really work in most of the countries, particularly on the European continent. So if valuation creates the risk, then valuation also is the solution. It's basically about uh, finding a method that can produce a value that in terms of um, tax valuation and evidence uh, rules around tax valuation can rank higher than any next best method. Because what you want to achieve is that you produce a value for an equity plan as from inception and then throughout the inception all the way through the exit for each of the movements in the capital structure that can trigger taxation. That each and every time the, uh, the transactions and the movements are executed at fair market value, whereas fair market value then is by reference to a vex, uh, tax valuation method that is prevailing. And that's where valuation methods come in that used uh, um, to be um, very, let's say, uh, uh, underdeveloped 10 years ago. They were not really uh, academic trained. Uh, the universities in the world didn't really produce the right method. So in practice, there have been methods that were developed 
and specifically geared towards this uh, specific point. So the tax risk is really a matter of finding the best method in the market that can produce a number that we as tax people would say is the price that the market would pay for this specific equity package, even though the equity package as such is not subject to a market transaction, but the underlying links to the market pricing can be used to evidence that this is the prevailing value. So, uh, Willem, um, in your experience, I mean, what, what are the strengths and weaknesses of the different valuation methods? I mean, most of us that have been involved in these sorts of discussion, I mean, we are always um, concerned by the volatility and to a certain extent, the, the goal-seeking um, features that some of the methods may have. Um, so, again, what are the strengths and weaknesses and how does this impact the ability to ensure uh, these sort of risks in order to, to manage them with a more robust uh, solution? I would separate between um, basically, and to make it easy, two types of uh, methods, the weak and the strong, basically uh, can be evidenced or can be found by um, uh, looking at a method from the perspective of is it a a method that is directly linked to market transaction pricing, which is actually what we call uh, a method that is actually doing that, is a market transaction pricing method. Those can be, if they have a very good track record in terms of surviving challenges, be insured and even provide a product guarantee. The methods that are in no way capable of doing that are what we call synthetic methods. They deviate from what the market actually does. Uh, they are um, by design uh, suitable for a non-tax domain, for example, to uh, provide a proxy for an option, uh, stock appreciation, right, a derivative, if you will. But equity, even levered equity, is not an option. So a synthetic method that is actually trying to find the price for something that is equity, not an option, is the wrong instrument by nature. You, you can identify them by the names of them. For example, the Monte Carlo model. It's basically a chance-generated method that produces almost, if you will, the goal-seeking that you just referred to. It can produce any number in a, in, in a range of 1 euro to 100 or 1 euro to 10. Any, any value, any price within that range can, in terms of evidence, be equally good, which means that the taxman, when they look at it, would say, well, I accept your method. It's apparently something that everybody does. I don't decline the method, but I will take your method, I'll look at it, I'll look at the parameters that you used, and then I can find and conclude that actually 10 is also a good value on the range. So if that's evidenced to be the right price also, why should I use your one if it can be 10? So the goal-seeking that you see in the Monte Carlo model or a Black and Scholes model, which is an option pricing method, it's not an equity valuation method, um, is all used because of the wide range of parameters that you can put in there. You can deploy it for goal-seeking, but what happens instantly upon a tax audit is that the tax authorities, particularly these days, because they have a very good understanding of what this is, um, they can recognize it as the wrong method, and they know it's easy to challenge. But because of the big numbers ex uh, at stake, they will then uh, deploy the challenge because they can raise a huge tax bill on it. Whereas if, if, if you compare it with a market transaction pricing method, that is, for example, the ones that we always use, um, it's based on M&A markets. It's based on private equity deal and deal routines. It uses the pricing uh, of thousands and thousands of leveraged buyouts and buyouts in the market in Europe and North America, and then specifically and more so on the deal itself. And then it builds up from market pricing within the deal 
to uh, pricing of uh, uh, the equity on top of the business. And then within the equity packages of the managers, they're all linking back from the market transaction to the equity package with evidence and uh, mathematical logic that can prove the price to be the right one, that can be used to test whether it's the prevailing one. It can be used to provide counterindications whether any of the other values that might be suggested, for example, by tax authorities could be equally good. And if not, why not? Because in a court case, for example, you need to provide evidence. Um, and then the easiest uh, version thereof would be, as you refer to, the one that is insured. And um, even though an insurance company could decide for themselves why they would insure one method and not the other, um, they simply looked uh, at track record. If a method has survived challenges of tax authorities for 10 years, then it's likely that they will find it insurable. If a method is prone to a tax challenge simply because it can produce a goal-seeking number, so the tax authorities can do the same, an insurance company would call that a house already on fire or easy to catch fire is never going to be insured. And that would render the stakeholders in the equity plan with the risk of being challenged. Um, and numbers are so big that we would normally say, well, first find a method that you can insure. Uh, if it's insured or insurable, then even if you don't insure it, you can rest assured that your version is a much better one than the one that apparently would never have been picked up by an insurance company. So it's um, it's a it's a market widely populated with methods, um, all kinds of methods with fancy names. But if it's a goal-seeking uh, method or a method that you can easily tweak in terms of parameters, the outcome being a completely different one, uh, we always say don't use it. Because if the tax authorities can consider that method a good one, accept it as such, but produce a 10 times bigger value, um, the whole equity plan is, 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 is almost an endangered species. So, um, yeah, I think for the market, um, uh, we now find it easier to simply give them um, uh, the right question to ask, which is, is it a product guarantee? Is it, an, is it an insurable or an insured valuation? Because if not, these days, uh, an equity plan could be easily prone to um, uh, bigger tax from the tax authorities. Okay, well, that's certainly very interesting, William. And uh, particularly, I find that the approach in the UK is quite similar to the uh, continental Europe approach. So the, the focus in the UK is also really to prepare a very robust valuation um, because recently, Shumarsi have started to look at the whole value, which is element of expectation or your expectation as to how much you are expecting to receive from your carry in the future. So the approach is quite similar. And I think more generally, just to wrap up, it is interesting to see that there seems to be a tendency for the governments to, on the one hand, raise additional revenues to effectively reinforce their budgets and, and potentially to balance their books post-COVID. And on the other hand, to really create incentives for businesses, individuals to invest in their economies, like in Spain and the UK, uh, which are very good examples actually on those two uh, opposing trends. So we just have to probably wait and see how this evolves more generally in the post-pandemic world that we're living in. And that's it for today's episode of the Fund Tax Talks. Uh, we hope that you enjoyed this inaugural edition and uh, more episodes on other topics will be available in the near future. But for now, thank you for uh, listening and goodbye.